Hey guys, it's season four of The Rosin Diaries. I hope you've been enjoying it so far and we have lots more to talk about. I would like to apologize first of all. This is quite a noisy um, podcast. Oh, it's my dog as well. I'm sitting in my kitchen and my washing machine is going, so you may hear that in the background. In the UK, we it's a little bit different we're actually in the whole of europe it's a little bit different to the states so in the states i believe if you have a laundry room or a basement you would have a washing machine and dryer in your house if not you use a laundromat so in europe pretty much everyone has a washing machine in their house even if they don't have space for a laundry room that's my cat god it's going crazy today it's really gonna be like a sound (laughs) a soundy podcast um and it's very very common to keep them in your kitchen so even flats or or apartments in the uk will have a washing machine in their kitchen and that's just a culturally different thing that i've seen argued a lot on twitter finally i'd like to apologize for not doing the podcast last week we were hit by storms the boy lost his new really precious greenhouse we barely got through um um concerts and i had to weatherproof the whole outside of my um, property and so the podcast didn't happen but today we are going to be talking about the music industry I'm going to be explaining to you guys the difference between a distributor a publisher an agent a manager this is film music as well so film music and um, like regular music And then in addition to that, I'm going to be talking about an article I shared recently in regards to the big production houses of film music that have sprung up in the last 20 or 30 years that didn't exist before. And uh, this article that I did share on social media kind of um, criticizes the hold they have over Hollywood. And I'm going to give my opinions on that. So I've moved to my living room just because the washing machine is getting louder and louder. So the reason I like talking about music business once in a while on the podcast is number one, some of you guys are very interested in it. Number two, not many people know what goes on. It's quite a secretive world. And number three, for um, professional musicians out there or potentially professional musicians, students, I like to talk about music business because despite doing a professional music degree, none of this was explained to me. Um, And I think it's kind of important. I think when we live, in the world we live in right now, music careers have been able to become so much more independent. We can take control of those careers a lot more. But there's a lot of pitfalls and a lot of stuff that's not readily available and you just learn it through experience and um, I think it's it's good to get this knowledge so talking about all the different roles in music in the music biz so the first two I'm going to talk about are publishers and distributors like they kind of do 
almost a similar thing, but there's a difference, and I think you should have one of each. Some of the roles I'm going to talk about, I personally don't like having, and I have worked with some of them, and I actually feel that I can do what they're doing, and it's not a big deal. But publishers and distributors, I say, were very important for anyone who's making money from music they write or music they record. That's my dog. So I just had to let Sissy in because she was going out to inspect the garden. She's come back in and she's sitting beside me now. So back to what we will do this podcast, Sissy, won't we, eventually? Oh, she wants a hug. She smells a bit swampy from being outside. I only bathed her the other day. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. So, not agents. It was publishers and distributors. Publishers and distributors, um, if you record or write music, you will need these guys because in this day and age as well, I think once upon a time you could be self-published. So once upon a time, a publisher of music would be selling your sheet music to other people. But since the recordings of music have come about, and since there's so many different ways that your music can be exploited, I think a publisher and a distributor are necessary because they, they have what you call like algorithms and stuff that can find out on the internet where your music's being played, in what country, on what streaming devices, if anyone's used it on a YouTube video, they can find it everywhere. And I would say you need both, otherwise you're missing out on some of the royalties that you're due. So a distributor, that is a company that you will work with to get your your recorded music um, distributed <laughs> to shops online or in the flesh. Um, so you, you'll need a distributor if you want it on iTunes, on uh, let me <laughs> Spotify, Distro, YouTube Music, all that kind of stuff. And then they distribute it to those shops and then the shop reports them. But the thing is, and what people don't realize, because people are like, um, you know, did you get this? I play, you know, I, I downloaded your, sh- um, your music and I'll actually get um, DMs like... I hope, you know, I hope the money found itself too. But the thing is, um, the shops report how many sales are, and it can be anything from three months to six months in the future. So if you were to buy my music in December, I wouldn't get a report properly and see that money until like June. And so it's it's like a long time passive income for all of that. But they, they do all that collection and without... I mean, I don't think you can distribute the music without a distributor, but even if you did, to actually keep on track of how much you owed, it would be impossible. Now, that they also, some distributors do better than others, but they kind of find out wherever it's being streamed and stuff, and they, they um, automatically, like, get the, you know, the YouTube royalty claims and all that sort of stuff. So it's very good to make sure no one's ripping off your music. Um, they, they work with those companies and then second of all the publisher a lot of musicians do not necessarily use a publisher but it's very very important so the the publisher registers the the distributor works solely on that recording so they are just getting the money for that recording that they distributed for you um the publishers however they publish and they copyright I mean, you, you've copyrighted, you own the copyright, but they establish your copyright as a writer of the music. So not only will they register it with a um, 
all the music agencies and stuff to to make that clear that you're copyrighted but also you can do that yourself you can just establish your copyright but in addition to that they um will get the royalties anytime your piece of music is played so it doesn't have to be that one recording anytime your music is played by another artist anytime your music is played on radio on tv um and so the the different scenarios where a publisher comes in for example is if i myself were to play my own music at a live event then the the um, venue would pay like um, a certain a performing rights license per year and part of that license fee would go towards my music so I would get royalty payment for playing my music if another musician played my music you register it and you get the royalties for that um, if my music's played on BBC, which it has been, then I get a royalty every play in the same way that if I were to play my own music on my radio show, I get, so thank you everyone who requests my music, I get royalties for that, which, and also just a big shout out, Classic FM Hall of Fame, if um, a lot of you have been voting me in on that, and um, that helps me out because then I get played on Classic FM if I get in the Hall of Fame. In addition to, I'm doing it obviously through me, just my experiences, in addition to that, film music. So, as a film composer, you will get an upfront fee for, um, for writing the music. But every time that music is played, then you get a royalty as a composer for your publisher, so it's extra fees. Um, also, if, you, if you've distributed it, then you get a fee through your... Um, distribution for you know the recording itself so it's very complicated but basically the publisher gets more fees for you um so for example i sometimes i mean i write for film directly but i also write for music libraries where uh, bbc i've noticed use them a lot that's how i went for this company it's pond five p-o-n-d and then number five um and then people will buy, will hire the music to use on like documentaries or anything like that. Even it could be adverts, it could be computer games. You don't know, you know, it's just up for anyone who wants to use your music. But by registering it with the publisher, then you also get a royalty every time it's streamed on a, um, you know, whatever platform. So that's how those two work. I would say I could not do that job myself. I mean, that's a full time job these companies have algorithms they have it all you know sorted out so i don't know how a musician would do that without a publisher so i think they're very important and now we're going to go on to other roles so the two other roles we're going to look at are agents and managers so agents and managers they come up in both the music industry and the film industry so i've dealt with the possibility of both but again they're very similar roles an agent, it's basically their job to book your work. I've just got to let my dog out again. She's in and out sissy today. I think it's because the storms have stopped. She wants to go and inspect the damage. And I'm back. It's a very disjointed podcast. I'm sorry. There's pets going everywhere. Um, so an agent's main role is to book your work. Many musicians feel they need an agent to get themselves in festivals. Or as a film composer, lots of people, the dream is to get an agent. It's seen as once you have an agent, you'll be on for higher work. 
you're like higher up work you've moved up in your career and then second of all is a manager a manager is someone who manages your career who gives you career advice who plots the path of your career and then either the agent or the manager can for film composing um not i'm gonna say often the manager more but sometimes the agent they can do all like um things like hiring studios so when you're paid as a film composer you get paid um the full fee but all expenses come off of that so if you need to hire an orchestra if you need to hire a studio all that stuff comes off the fee and so um the agent or the manager will can be in charge of that they can do it for you so all you have to do is compose basically they they will do all the contracting of those and everything like that i have briefly worked with an agent and manager and in my experience um i don't think it was i think i it's better for my career to not have one so i didn't see the jobs increase or me being able to enter the industry any more quickly it's not the sort of um holy grail that people think it is and the main reason is um in both probably more like in classical music and film music i can't speak for pop music it may be different there but it's a lot to do with relationships well it's two different things actually in film music it's to do with the quality of your work and um, the relationship you build with the director and possibly the producer or music supervisor of a film and less to there's never I mean very very rarely will you see a job advert for a film composer it's not like a, it's not and, and that's probably like something that's lacking in the industry that there's no transparency with job roles so it's it's one of the only jobs or areas in life i think i can think of that is very much to do with who you know not what you know well it's actually both it's what you know and who you know so you're not going to be hired if you're terrible because at the end of the day a film composer can completely ruin a film for many reasons the music is so important but also they work on the back end of the film and there's always deadlines to film and if you are not capable of fulfilling your role within the allotted time and it's normally a short amount of time you will be costing the film huge amounts of money you're going to be wearing away at that budget and at that end of the project the budget's very tight so it is what you know but it's what you know plus who you know have a little sip of peppermint tea there so really with that saying you only actually get more films from your networking ability from your ability um, to create work for yourself and from showcasing your abilities and yes you could have a manager who gives you advice like do you know what you should go to the Cannes Film Festival network down there or um, and also manager will be able to because they've worked in the industry for ages they'll be able to say something like hey there's um, you know this event is for women in film you should go to that or this is like where the British um, film industry that you know and there's I can get you tickets for this um, event or this event or this event at the same time um, the the 
benefits of an agent is that they can help you negotiate contracts. Bear in mind, most musicians are not trained lawyers. But as far as I'm concerned, in a day and age of the internet, for the percentages paid to each a manager and an agent, I can actually do the research online to find out where I should be going in my career. Like, if I want to go to the Canfield Festival, I can just ask a few questions or look on a few websites and find out where everyone hangs out. From my network of film composers who have been to Cannes, you know, I can say, where's the best places to go? Is it worth doing? And all this sort of stuff. So I can ask advice myself from other people in the music industry without paying a percentage of my income. And then as far as an agent goes, the majority, if you're working on a lower budget film, you, I mean, you should have, you, you can learn how to negotiate the contracts yourself. Number one, you should have a contract. Lots of, believe me, lots of composers don't use a contract. If you're working internationally, you should be thinking of a way that you can recoup your money if someone chooses not to pay you. You know, like, what am I going to do if they don't fulfill this contract? How is it imposed? And a good way is to be paid through PayPal and invoice through PayPal. Or another way is know the court system, like the small claims court or anything in that country and how easy it is to negotiate and stuff like that. Finally, if it's a higher budget film, then you probably should be um, looking into that contract a lot more and knowing your worth and everything. But the thing is, for those, for high budget films, a the agent will book a music lawyer for you, a film lawyer for you, because they know the contracts. Or I suppose entertainment lawyer would be the correct term. And you can do the same thing without, you know, everything the agent does, you can hire. And I would recommend hiring a lawyer before signing any contract of a larger budget. I mean, it's not worth hiring a lawyer if the lawyer's fee is going to be swallowed up by everything. So you can actually do that without paying the fee. Now, on the downside of having a manager and an agent, this is what I didn't like. It actually slowed down my pro my career progression because all the networking I do and the easy, like, joining up to films and making decisions, everything has to be run by the agent and the manager. So it is kind of like my career is not in my hands anymore and I didn't really like that. So there's the other thing there, having a, people believe that having an agent or a manager makes you seem more professional and things like that. But I think it's putting the cup before the horse, really. Um, so I, I think work without an agent or a manager and if you get to a studio that only deals with an agent or manager, if you're in line for a major blockbuster film and they want you, you know, I'm only dealing with someone as an agent or manager, you can quickly get one because no agent's going to turn you down if you're doing a top film. So I don't think there's a there's a worry there. Now, in classical music, um, I feel like having an agent or a manager um, quickly catapults you to higher up... Um, festivals very quickly but at the same time I feel like you can't necessarily negotiate your terms of your business and you despite being self-employed you become more of it's somewhere between an employee and a slave you know I mean you 
a little bit. I mean, the worst case scenario is not in classical music, is a Britney Spears kind of thing. But um, I think you need to learn how to control your business before you appoint people to manage your business. There's too much in the music industry um, where the man there's too much power to managers. It's the only industry I know where you are the company, you're the CEO of the company, you're the founder of the company. Um, even if it's not a company, most people are sole traders, but you own this company. Yet when you appoint a manager, the manager tells you what to do in every aspect normally of your life. And so that seems a bit skewed. And so I like to manage my own career. And if it comes to a point where I'm too busy to do that, then I will appoint someone to work under me and follow my instruction and manage things how I want. Maybe that makes me a control freak. I don't know. But it also makes me want, like, I'm someone who likes autonomy in my life. So that's where I stand on the agent thing. But there are, there are perks and benefits to agents um, and all that sort of stuff. Um, then there's other kind of roles as publicists and the clues in the name. Some musicians tend to have it. Some film composers have them, some not so much. But they are the basic sort of, um, I think, I can't think of anything else that's really kind of required. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about actually other roles that aren't so necessary, but they come up in a bit when I get to the next part of this. So now we're going to talk about film music and the film industry in regards to composers. So the article I refer to is a Vanity Fair one and it says the minions do the actual writing, the ugly truth of how movie scores are made. And it just is kind of, it's the first article I've ever seen like this, but it's an expose on the film music industry and where it's got to. It's referring a lot to there's these huge music production houses now run by some famous composers and basically if you look on some composers I'm not going to name them but the I mean the article it's, it's actually just one composer it's criticizing really it says it refers to composers plural but there's only one they name and shame about it so read the article Vanity Fair um, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to name and shame, but um, some composers, if you look on their IMDb, they're working on like nine films at the same time, like literally they're doing them all at once, which is kind of impossible. If you're working on one feature film, then you're probably putting in like 60 hour a week or something. So how can you work on nine? Up until the 90s, composers were individuals um, working on films like John Williams, one film. And John Williams is probably the old school kind of composer where he still writes pencil and paper. It's always pencil, by the way, when you compose. You get taught that from a young child. And he works at a piano and then he, he um, expands it to a full orchestra and then he records it in the studio of orchestra while he's conducting it. And it's, it's the old school, you know, like just individual composers working in solitary confinement, that kind of thing. Um, there's a new brand of composers and they're very successful and they're Oscar winning. But they have made basically music factories 
And so there's a whole production line going on um, where the main composer writes sketches or semi-themes, like this is what I want. Then he hands it out to his everything. They're, they're, they have like a sliding scale of importance. So interns, college interns on their, I think they do it for credits and stuff, who are unpaid interns, all the way up to... Um, music assistants and stuff and there's about 30 people working in these studios and the idea of this article is that basically they're the ones they're not just in the past i mean and this still happens in britain so we i to my knowledge we don't have any of these music houses in the uk so in the uk you lots of young musicians will try and write to and get an internship with a major composer and they will work under them. And basically the job is the composer writes the music and the intern will do the drudge work, like copying the sheet music out neatly. Or if it's electronic music, neating it up, making sure it fits within the bars, um, compressing it, making the adjusting sounds slightly, you know, tidying it up. And... But they get to sit with that composer, they get to see how they work, they get to network, they get to be named on the film. So it's, you know, it's worth it, it's just putting the hours in. But the claim in this article by unnamed sources, and the sources are so unna are unnamed because apparently according to them, they're so scared of um, being whistleblowers that they don't want to be named. Well, their claim is that it's actually the 30 people working under that composer who are doing the majority of the composing with the famous composer just kind of like I mean it's similar to like the artist studios by famous artists back in like the 19th and 20th early 20th century um but the claim is that they work with very little guidance of the composer the composer just gives a like rough idea of what he wants all the composers the 30 composers go away and then they submit the cues the cues are like that's what they call the snippets of music for individual parts of film they submit them and then like the the winner gets that put in the film so there's not a lot of input other than the the famous composer is more of a um, quality control than actually a composer also there's like a various the the pay structure on the compositions are kind of flexible from composer to composer but some of them are stating I think like $150 per cue that's accepted so you'll be working for hours on multiple cues with the hope that one will get in the film let me just I'm going to go to the article um, and read a little bit out to you um, creating music in the 21st century Hollywood as a composer for any winning cable series put it feels like an underground a real pimp uh, pimp situation he talked about long hours low pay and working under a martin um, martinet lead composer his boss who delegated the actual work of writing and recording one time he had a meltdown because the director was coming to hear what he had come up with and he didn't have anything to pl um, to play him the composer went on because my computer had all the music on it and it was on the fritz but it's it seems to be getting more and more like that now from my own opinions on this i didn't know 
that that was the working environment in these places. Of the one com main composer who was sort of criticised for his production warehouse company, whatever, um, I don't know, slave labour camp, <laughs> I, I don't know what you want to call it. The one that's criticised in the article has been one that's come under criticism from me before, but I didn't know that this, well, what's been suggested or alleged I didn't know that that was a thing. I always said about this composer, they write really good music. Like, you want to get this composer involved. And like, he's he's uh, one of the wealthiest composer in Hollywood. And he's much more wealthy than John, um, John Williams. But you can see why. You can see why he can ask whatever he wants for um, the, you know, for a film. Because he guarantees Oscars. But I didn't know it wasn't him composing. In addition to this, you know I spoke about royalties and things earlier on. In film, most of your pay is the royalties on major films. And when he's claiming composers work and they're either not even being credited or they're being credited as assistant or they're credited as additional, they don't get the royalties. So they miss they miss out they get a low pay for creating the music. They and then they don't get the extra money on top of that. But I've always said that they create wonderful music. But my criticism of this um, composer was that they were kind of a gatekeeper of Hollywood. So people have come, people that I admire have come out of the studio. But my problem was the studio. I mean, as a, I mean, I've got my own agenda, obviously. I um, there's a big thing about female composers. Um, quickly they're growing. I'm seeing more and more female composers do major projects. But up until the pandemic, only three percent of composers in Hollywood were females. And, but fifty percent of the film composing classes are women. And then when I look at this particular composer studio. He has no females in the studio, so he he picks college students, and then he raises them up. But he's picking college students who are very much like him, and so that was my sort of criticism of it. Also, it's the fact that I mean, it's a small demographic. It's normally um, white males, but also who happen to go to college in LA. So I'm lucky people like, did you, I wouldn't like to go down, looking at this article as well, I definitely wouldn't like to go down this route because it seems to be a sink or swim kind of environment. You work as a slave and then for some people they're exalted very quickly into major films and it's a cool career path for them. But for the majority of them, they end up leaving the industry and they are broken and broke. And... It reminds me a little bit of like reality TV and um, music competitions like the X Factor and stuff. Like it's kind of like selling your soul on the hope that it pays off. And so I prefer the approach of working slowly and it takes longer to work your way up the career ladder. But it's a steady and secure path and it's a safe path and you're in control of that path. And you don't feel like you're compromising yourself. So that's why I prefer. But in addition to that, I would say that I don't have a choice in the matter because I don't fit any of the demographic to be considered for um, one of those. So it's, I think it's kind of handy. So I haven't had any experience myself. 
But I did see it as quite worrying that there is one composer, and according to this article, they say more than one, that has a control and a growing control over Hollywood. Where it was Netflix once upon a time was seen as the, the place for indie, you know, the place where up and coming composers and directors could get their work there. Um, this one particular company is, um, well, composer and his production company are taking over Netflix. More and more music is being done for Netflix and it'll be the same. People who are quite wealthy in Hollywood are seeing how the the financial benefits of these streaming companies like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and that kind of makes it a bit more difficult to for like you know like in the original style of composers but you do still see them out there there's still quite a lot of them and things so i don't think it's too much right so my basic thing is um i've learned a lot more potentially i'm gonna say because allegedly allegedly it's just you know there is unnamed sources and stuff but there is a lot of unknown sources and i would say there's been a lot of whisperings about a lot of things for a long time and i do think any industry that's very opaque is worrying and i do think jobs that are never ever auditioned for are worrying but i would say that it's i mean i don't i'm not gonna spend my life complaining or moaning about the state of things you know all my energy moaning about it so i'm discussing it today but i don't think these style of mechanisms kind of hold me back completely they make things a little bit more uncomfortable and challenging but i also have things open to me that perhaps are not open when you work within that structure for instance i have the freedom to make friends and collaborate and get into jobs in kind of i wouldn't say it's like a back door or side door or anything like that but when i'm not working within the confines of a structure i'm not being abused or i have to toe the line in order or compromise myself in any way in order to get a job I can literally, I mean, through social media and LinkedIn and everything like that, I can um, make those connections. And if, and you can test the waters, you know, do we mutually admire each other's work? Are we, you know, I've made some very, very strong connections that way. Um, and I think I prefer that. I prefer the safety in that where I'm completely controlling my life. But yeah, I think it is kind of powerful for that to be exposed, um, what's going on in these kind of um, settings. Hopefully there will be some kind of shake-up because another thing is, what what a lot of people have said, away from the working, like the what appears to be very poor working environments and exploitation, what the criticism is, and I've actually been against this criticism because I love the sound of this composer's music. I'm honestly a big fan of what I thought was his music. But um, people, a lot of composers, a lot of industry insiders have said for a long time that there's becoming one sound in film composing. So I'm drinking my tea. Like, there's, because the only people who are rising up in the music composition world are coming from certain production houses. They're working their way through 
through that gatekeeper and up to the top that they they've learned through that style so every film is linked to this production company every film even these new big composers who are working on their own now they were trained in that way so there's just one sound there's not like a oh that's john williams or that's danny elfman or that's i'm trying to think of other ones but yeah there's there's not so much that sound anymore there's just one sound um so that's like artistically that's a, that's kind of a worry because you're going to be left with a sound instead of films having their own like oh clearly this is the sound of Raiders of the Lost Ark or this is I mean Danny Elfman has such a sound you can hear any piece and go that's Danny Elfman I love um, the Alice in Wonderland score I've been doing that recently for stage it shows and I think I played it on the radio but there's a Danny Elfman sound then you have these these composers with individual sounds whereas the ones coming out of the studio under the guys under the control of a huge composer they will have only that because they've been trained for years they send these cues in and the cue that is picked they start to learn don't they this is what's needed this is what's needed this is what he prefers and you train and you adapt your style to fit in with that so i would say that's a downside but again seeing beautiful things i mean i'm gonna bring up something and kind of left ball now but there's a tv show called euphoria and I absolutely love it. It's not for everyone. I mean, it's a bit like cutting edge. It's about teenagers, but it's very stark. It's very bleak and it's very gritty in it's the way it's dealing. I don't think it's just for teens. I think it's for late teens and adults. I don't think you'd let a teen, like a 13 year old watch this or even a 15 year old. It's, I'm sure there are watching it, but it's very, I mean, from dealing with trans storylines to gay storylines to drugs, there's a lot of drugs in it, um, nudity, body positivity, but the way they deal with it is a very, um, it's very real. And so, but what I really like about it, it's kind of, I mean, the, the aesthetic of the show is really, I'm, I can't think of how to describe it other than odd. It's very artistic. It's very... I mean, the end of season... Zendaya's in it, by the way. And the way they ended season one, it was just her breaking into a dance number, which was going completely against about the cutting-edge drugs and everything. Um, so it is, it's kind of dream sequence and stuff. But I think it's, it's really compelling. But the reason I'm bringing it up today is because the composer on it... So season one, there's, the music goes everywhere. The music is amazing. Every bit of the music is amazing, but there's no style. I mean, there's no one style. It's everything from gospel to serious classical to sometimes sound design. I love it when sound design meets music. So basically, like, the hitting of nails becomes part of the soundtrack and stuff. I find that really fascinating. And I've done that, actually, in Out of Time. I was, you know, I was inspired by other composers. And... I was I was saying to many friends that like, I don't know who composes it. I don't know who composes it. It must be lots of composers because that's not just one style. Who has the range to do all this stuff? Well, I looked up on IMDb and it turns out one of my favourite pop artists, Labyrinth. Um, so you may have known I've spoken about him before from the supergroup LSD, which is Labyrinth, Sia, and the DJ Diplo. 
but he's a British artist. He was signed under the Psycho label, which is Simon Cowell, which I think Grace Davis was also signed um, signed to. If you're a Stage It fan, you'll know who Grace Davis is. Um, so I love Labyrinth, but it's really interesting because he's a music producer slash singer. And his background is he plays about five instruments, like not to a soloist degree. I doubt he'd be giving solo recitals, but pretty well. A lot of his first music experience was in kind of the, the traditional black churches. And I know a lot of people in the UK, they learn the instruments that way. Then he went into a more traditional classical um, training while also learning like um, various pop producer beats and stuff like that. So it makes perfect sense. This is Labyrinth's first outing as a um, film composer. He's not, to my knowledge, trained in any way in film composing. So that's a high level gig as your first gig. But he is a high level well-known artist. And he pulls it out of the bag and smashes it. I'd say he's one of the most exciting film and TV composers of the moment. But I would say everything he does, he does really well. So I'm really liking him. So looking at the time, I'm basically out of time now, so I'm going to leave this conversation here. Um, I hope you like these insights into film and music industry, I hope it gives you a little bit more knowledge. Um, I do think it's not like, it's not the most, I was going to say traditional, but it's a huge tradition, it's not the most regulated of industries, both of these industries aren't the most regulated. And there are flaws in it and there are things to work on. But at the same time, I think we are living in a period of time where us as artists can empower ourselves a lot more and have a very stable career. And I think I've kind of proved that by existing as an artist in the pandemic. Um, and so I only hope, I saw so many artists who don't seem to have so much control of their careers and were hit by the pandemic and do fall into these traps and I do hope if they're listening to this they will empower themselves because in an age of information and technology we can navigate these systems and yes it's not the same kind of job as being a teacher and you will go for that interview and it's not like that that it's very opaque but we can shine a light on it thanks to information we can gain knowledge and I hope I think for our training, musicians are not encouraged to empower themselves a lot. They're encouraged to work on their craft and they are encouraged to be the best they can be and to create. But they're almost encouraged to look at the business side of, of music and film as the dirty side. Like you need to get an agent, you need to get a manager, you need to get someone to deal with all that because it's, it's not for you to touch. You don't want to dirty your hands with it. But I feel like we are consistently opening ourselves up to be victims or to be exploited if we do not understand how it works. So though I'm not against working with professionals and business professionals who are more experienced than I am, I don't think I should give them power over my career. I think I should seek their advice or you know, seek their help. But I always want to maintain the control of my life and my business. 
And so that's where I stand on the whole thing. And it's working out well for me. And the reason I say it's working out well for me is it depends what you're chasing really, isn't it? I'm not chasing notoriety and I'm not chasing fame and I'm not, I don't chase those, I don't think they'll make me happier. I'm chasing a nice happy life where I try to reduce as much struggle as possible and get to do, continue to work on great projects and continue to work my way upwards. And I actually enjoy the the journey. I enjoy climbing that ladder one step at a time. It gives me gives me so much more thrill than adulation. Um, I'm going to a film festival on Saturday um, where I was the composer in a film. It's it's not the premiere. I missed the premiere. I didn't know, you know, with pandemic and stuff, I didn't know it was happening. Um, there's a communication thing, but it's it's been accepted at another film premiere. And then afterwards, as, yeah, so th at that case, I will get quite a bit of, I think I'm going to get quite a bit of adulation at this premiere, at this um, um, film festival because I didn't realise this, but the, the director got back to me. The films did really well at the premiere and the big talk was the music, which I was a bit shocked on because I didn't know if I was doing the right thing for this film. <laughs> it's a comedy horror and like I, I, I've never seen like I don't. I suppose yeah. Like I should have thought of that. Um, um, what is it called? The the ones by the Wayans brothers. Okay, I do know what comedy horror is, but I I never really worked on comedy. My horror seems to be quite dark. My music. So I tried my best, and I. But it's, it was liked. It's really liked. So I think I'll get a lot of praise. But I actually feel quite comfortable getting like praise. Um, I, it's really weird. I don't ever get embarrassed. A lot of people get embarrassed seeing themselves on screen. I'm not an actor, I don't see myself on the screen, but I never get embarrassed watching my videos back on Instagram. It makes me laugh sometimes I watch my videos because like, what were you doing? Watching my stage, it's back at, doesn't, watching any performance of mine doesn't, <coughs> no, oh, that's my dog. Sorry, the pets are very jumpy since the storm. Um, yeah, so it doesn't, watching myself back, I don't get that, that embarrassed feeling. Um, but I don't, I have never liked it when I perform. Um, after a concert when people come up and, and they heap you of praise. I don't mind like if people are leaving go, oh yeah, good show. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really like, you know, like endless praise or, or like if there's, if it's a big hall and lots of people want to queue up to praise you or, or I've never really liked that. I, I don't get me wrong. I'm not against like, you know, thanks for liking the music or I, I'm, I like positive feedback. I just don't like excessive adulation. And so... I feel like potentially at, at, it sounded like that's why I got the one I wasn't there. So I that will make me a bit uncomfortable. Never been chasing adulation. I think that's why I moved into film composing because it's actually less attention. You just work on your own in a studio. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm going to that film prem, uh, not premiere festival, and then afterwards I come up with a cunning plan. I'm saying this now with the hope that no directors I work with listen to my podcast. I feel they don't, but I could be wrong. Ben Cody may be listening because he did the podcast with me recently, but I'm hoping, I'm gonna say it, they're not listening. If you're listening directors, close your ears now. But, sneaky me, this is how I, this is how I manage my business. So afterwards, I've invited, um, where are we going? I know this is really good Brazilian restaurant because Daniel, 
pianist Daniel who lives in Brazil he took me there when I was in the UK so I invited my film director who I did the film with to go to the Brazilian restaurant he's like yeah but I've got a friend is it okay to bring us fine and my plan is that I don't like the excessive adulation but if I am getting the adulation then that's getting their attention and then I can ask other important people potential connections for the future to come along to the Brazilian restaurant so I've got that all booked in and it's a potential my plan is to go watch the film it's like see how it all turned out because I haven't seen the film yet um, if I do get the like oh the music's so good like, to, like come, I have to come up with lines beforehand on how to um, react to um, really nice comments you know because our number one thing that women do is always like oh no, it's not or you know like we can't take compliments so I come up with a few lines to be thankful but in a like like reasonable way but then while talking to those people invite them to the Brazilian and then potentially I've created after the film a huge net impromptu networking event but i'll update you guys next week on how that goes and thank you for tuning in there will be a question on spotify if you would like to answer that it's like a text question so you can just on the community bit so you can just write in and i hope to catch up with you next week thank you for joining me for season four of the podcast i hope you love to listen make sure you give me a follow on whatever platform you're listening on and tell your friends and family about it oh also if you love it so much give it a review a good one